Bible reading for tonight is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 24 through 31. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. I think, then, that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not sink to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marriage marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. The word of the Lord. When Russell asked if I might preach sometime, I didn't look ahead to the lectionary readings or think about what day this might be in the church calendar or the House of Mercy calendar. I just picked a Sunday. And so maybe it's divine intervention or just bad luck that puts a a widow in the pulpit today when Paul is telling the church that those who marry will experience distress and those who mourn should act as though they are not mourning. He's also telling us on a day that if we buy, we should act as if we have no possessions. If we deal with the world, act as though we have no dealings with it. And here we are to celebrate the 2024 pledge drive. Sounds like an open and shut sermon to me, but at least we all get cocktails and canapes afterwards. The last time I stood up here to share my spiritual biography, I touched briefly on setting up an online dating profile. As a widow, blessed by angels, um, if you missed it, I think it's on the podcast somewhere. But my personal history does get a fair amount of airtime in the pulpit, and more than is perhaps strictly appropriate. But my theological training basically amounts to whatever you get showing up in a youngster classroom more Sundays than not. You heard, as our opening reading, most of the theory. The rest of my experience is just applied practice. Although, come to think of it, maybe that's where the personal narrative comes in handy. But to pick up where my last sermon left off, if ever there was an exercise in reductive labeling, online dating is it. Trying to squeeze oneself into a series of mobile app checkboxes is more restrictive than putting on my pre-pregnancy pants. Just take the religion category. How could I reduce 30-odd years of spiritual practice into one little checkbox? Or worse, it turned out, how could I judge somebody else based on his checkbox? It didn't take long for me to start wondering if maybe I have more in common with my late husband's vishla than the Christian men I encountered. At least the dog and I have kind of the same understanding of words like go out, or more obscurely, go shiki. 
Uh, not so with strangers and religious labels. It only took one or two off-kilter screeds and iPhone-initiated inquisitions into the validity of my religion to make anyone's profile piousness more of a red flag than something desirable. Dating apps, and probably most of the digital domain, are a treacherous landscape of binaries and bifurcated concepts. Lesson number one, simple categories aren't always simple to understand. Maybe we can take that and apply it to tonight's text. Paul says, if you're married, act like you're not. If you're mourning, well, don't look, at it. Don't look like it. If you're rejoicing, could you stop? If you buy something, please don't keep it. And if you use something, well, don't use it too much. In short, don't focus on the things that you have or feel or don't have or don't feel. Focus on the attachment itself. And to think that our church community is just about to start a book study on the relationship of Christianity and Buddhism. But that ephemerality is also a lesson from online dating. In addition to the reductive labeling, there's also this ephemerality of it all. A flirtatious face on a screen might never reply. A rapid-fire conversation could evaporate overnight. The present form of this world is passing away. Indeed. And so I find it a freedom to approach the whole process as Paul and incidentally, also my therapist, suggest, without labels or obligation, but instead with a genuine curiosity. And it is a curious thing to move past the superficiality and try to understand the person and the motivation behind some pixels on a screen. And I wonder the same thing about our scripture tonight. One snippet from listening to pastors of my past that I've taken away is the idea that anytime we're reading the epistles, or Paul's letters, we're opening up someone else's mail and reading messages that were written directly to them. We don't necessarily have the same benefit of their context or an ongoing exchange. It's just a scrap of paper with somebody else's name scrawled on the front and Maybe it was crumpled up and then smoothed out and, I don't know, translated from Greek to English and a couple thousand years later. There's probably an important message in there somewhere, but finding it might not be exactly straightforward. If I haven't talked to you about my day job recently, might not know that I've been spending far too long on the build-out of an online permitting and licensing system. Now, I like to think of myself as a pretty decent communicator, even when I have to talk to techie people, but let me tell you, it is a fresh level of hell trying to communicate this complicated bureaucratic process to a remote vendor with some technical expertise, but apparently zero ability to comprehend the written or spoken word. It has really driven home for me the point that words completely mean different things to different people. And we don't even have to get into the realm of technical terms of art for that to happen. A little closer to home, some of you have met our au pair, Joanna. Joanna is with my daughter and I for a year, come to us from Austria to help out with childcare and generally participate in cultural exchange. 
for a year. Now, my five-year-old has been very enthusiastic about welcoming another member to our household, and she eagerly anticipates every chance she gets to interact with Joanna. But as the end of December approached, Helena seemed a little bit more withdrawn and sad. And eventually, I asked her if something was wrong. She explained to me that it was almost time for the new year. The new year. Now, Helena knew that Joanna would be with us for a year, but apparently I never made it clear that that year was a 12-month period, not a calendar year. So as soon as I explained that Joanna would be with us until October 2020, 2024, Helena's been much happier. But if such a misunderstanding can arise in one household, where two people who know each other communicate face-to-face, -face, speak the same language, I shudder to think about, without guidance, what I might be getting wrong every time I pick up a sacred text. And there's another fascinating concept regarding the phrase, the word of God. And that phrase came from a mostly preliterate society, from a people who heard the scriptures spoken aloud on the Sabbath day, but didn't necessarily encounter them everywhere on those translucent tissue paper Bibles in the bedside table of your guest house, I'm willing to bet that there were no Gideons stocking the stable in Bethlehem. And there's words scrawled on everything from billboards to pizza boxes. It's quite amazing the number of places we see words in the modern world. But word, when the phrase word of God might have originated was a transactional, relational thing. It was spoken from a person to a person or written by hand. It wasn't anonymous and anesthetized, the product of a tricolor printer or a standardized set of fonts. The original word would have been something for you or for me, not for just anybody. And Paul's word was an apocalyptic word. The end is nigh, repent, or at least call off the wedding, for now. And also, importantly, for the Corinthians. Given his context, I'm not sure that I blame him. The interesting thing about a cancer diagnosis is that you do get to ask the question, what's worth it? When you have one more year to live, how do you do it? For me, I wouldn't choose to orchestrate a grand nuptial gathering. I'd be more interested in experiencing than organizing. And so maybe it would be easy to latch onto Paul's words and use them as a way to justify my own impulses or judge other people's actions. It would be easy to ignore the context or the apparent conflict of other biblical passages. How about Proverbs 18? He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Or Genesis 2, it's not good for a man to be alone. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And selfishly, it could be easy to call off the difficulties of online dating or try to op not open myself to other people's ways of being in the world and their diverse lived experiences. I could take it as a biblical call to just hunker down presumably until the rapture. But no, what I think that Paul is talking about when he talks about taking a wife in these passages is about picking allegiances. 
And moreover, it's about picking a narrow, self-centered allegiance. Taking a wife as an economic transaction of taking someone to fill an established, predefined role in society. Filling a checkbox, if you will. Not navigating a real relationship. And I don't read that Paul is denouncing the things that I learned as a partner and eventually as a wife. Things like compromise, sacrifice, durability, a shared sense of purpose. Things that are so visceral and relational and lived and experienced. Things that are so hard to put into words. And so maybe what Paul is calling the first century Corinthians to reject is not wives or marriage per se, but the specific one-sided aspect of taking a wife about focusing on just one person and not the broader community. Or maybe that's completely wrong. I have never been to Corinth, and I never lived in the first century. But at least, I would like to think that Paul is issuing a call to community. Because today is also a day at House of Mercy where we're talking about and celebrating making a commitment to a financial life together at least for 2024. In this year and change of spiritual practice at House of Mercy, I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between words and deeds, orthopraxy versus orthography versus orthodoxy, doing the right thing, saying or writing the same thing, believing the right thing. And especially in discussing Bible stories with elementary students, it becomes obvious that having the right words really falls short. There's a famous painting, and again, I would like to have visual aids during this presentation, but it's a famous painting called The Treachery of Images by surrealist René Magritte. It's a realistic image of a tobacco pipe with neat cursive beneath it. In French, ceci n'est pas un pipe. This is not a pipe, because although it's a picture of a pipe, it is not a pipe. It's a painting. But if a painting isn't a pipe, and Paul's list of things not to do is more about being distracted than it is about things really not to do, and if words are so valuable, would it be better to give up searching for a correct belief or right understanding and just try to do the right things? In the same way that I tried to give up identifying with Christians in my online dating adventures, Maybe it'd be also good to give up on church. I could abandon a community that I sometimes disagree with or find frustrating or that uses cloyingly sweet grape juice for communion. I could just stay at home and sip an appropriately dry Merlot and also not release so many greenhouse gas emissions in my Sunday commute. And since church is such a loaded term, implying judgment from holier-than-thou harpies or political conservatives or even just old Lutheran insistence on the way things have always been, maybe I should just give up on the label of church altogether. As an aside, I will admit, anytime I'm picking out a logo for a House of Mercy document, I immediately go to the one that says, House of Mercy Music Hall and then in very small font underneath, and church. I don't particularly like to admit that I'm a church staff member either. 
It's at odds with my ethics as a government employee to impose or to imply my religion publicly. And I don't want the negative connotations of being a church person to precede me. And so it is a bit of an odd thing to be on the church payroll as the youngster coordinator and also to encourage people to make a financial pledge to support this organization as well. I forget the exact context, but I remember the setting and especially this occurrence really well. We were downstairs in the cross room with a small group of youngsters kind of standing in the corner by the buffet table and we were talking about a previous year's pledge drive and I was trying to explain why we were having a party after church. And you know, the fluorescent lights are kind of flickering and chatting with one of my favorite students, although they are all my favorite students. But then there's this look of extreme horror and amazement on her face. Church costs money? Well, I tried to explain, as with so many things, it does and it doesn't. We don't charge anybody to walk through the door. Like God's love and mercy, our community is free and abundant and open to anyone who wants to participate. But at the same time, we also must render unto Caesar the rent payment, pay for heating and electricity, and give salaries to our pastors, our musicians, so that these people can buy food and clothing and computers and all the sorts of things that it's actually pretty nice to be able to own. And we pay for insurance and streaming software and sound equipment and lots of other things that aren't exactly earth-shattering but are really, really important to being able to host the type of gathering that we have. And so, if the time has grown short, let's then offer ourselves to the things that matter. The community, creative energy, arts, and exploration. Let's reject one-sided narratives the labels that reduce our existence. Let's look toward Jesus and the night when he suffered, who gave bread and wine to his community, knowing that the time was short, knowing that whatever exact words he spoke, they were not the message that he came to share, knowing that at his table, all would be welcome. Mm -hmm.